Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, and today we'll be looking at chapter 17. David is on the run again, this time from his son Absalom. While David is in exile in the harsh region east of Jerusalem, Absalom is in Jerusalem figuring out how to keep David from ever coming back as king. And as we look at 2 Samuel 17 this morning, we will again see a recurring theme in both, in both 1 and 2 Samuel, and that is that no one, nothing, can overthrow, get rid of, or terminate the Lord's kingdom plan. There are two perspectives that this chapter helps us see and hopefully understand. The first perspective is our perspective that it sure looks like so much of the time that God's reign as creator and king of heaven and earth is in jeopardy. Everyone in here should be able to identify with that kind of perspective. But there's God's perspective. That no matter what it looks like to us, God reigns. He is on his throne. And when we come to chapters in the Bible, like this chapter, we must bookmark it. But also, we must hold on to the promises and truths of God's word. In other words... We must look at this chapter in light of what God has already said is true and promised. Because this chapter today is wild. For instance, some truths that we need to remember as we look at this chapter. Back in 1 Samuel, chapter 28, verse 17, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, is speaking to the then king Saul. And he tells him, The Lord has done to you, Saul, as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. 2 Samuel three eighteen is also important to remember. Abner is speaking to the elders of Israel, and he says, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And then in chapter 5, verse 2 of 2 Samuel, all the tribes of Israel are saying to David at Hebron when he was almost assuming king. He's there. They said to him, In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you, David, who led us 
out to battle and brought us back in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You, David, shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Then in chapter 7, verses 12 through 16 of Second Samuel, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, the Lord speaking through his prophet to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, or a temple for me, for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the Son of Men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We must be careful not to focus just on character studies or the personal tragedies of the people in these stories. Because what's really important is the promise that God made to David and the threats to it, and then how we think about those things, because we can apply that to ourselves, builds faith, because we see who God is and what he has promised. So what's this chapter about then? Chapter 17 here is about a threat to God's appointed king. A threat to the kingdom of God. Chapter 17 simultaneously shows the Lord's kingdom under attack and the consolations that the people still have in such times. Because the human perspective here is what? As Ken said earlier, there they are leaving Jerusalem. Absalom is in Jerusalem. And what's the human perspective? The human perspective is that it looks like God's reign here and his promises are in jeopardy. It looks like, wow, this isn't going to happen. David's out. But God's perspective is very different. And as we just read those previous verses, he's made some very specific, clear promises about David and his reign as, as king of Israel. So how to proceed now? What do you do about David? This is what Absalom is dealing with now. Remember how chapter 16 ended? The last verse in chapter 16 says this. Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and 
by Absalom. Now this helps us introduce this chapter because Ahithophel is more or less the wise and crafty advisor. He sees and understands situations and the people involved. So what does Ahithophel advise in the first part of chapter 17? Remember, he has betrayed David now. He's with Absalom, David's son. Look at the first four verses of chapter 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men and I'll arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he's weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I'll strike down only the king and I'll bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. How's it sound to you? Doesn't really make any difference how it sounds to us. What we know is that this is really, really good advice from Absalom's perspective. So immediately we see a danger here that Absalom's desire to totally get rid of David, this is the way to do it. And did you notice there's kind of four, this is the four-step plan that Ahithophel gives here. Ahithophel will select this huge body of troops and pursue David immediately in verse 1. And then he'll strike while David's people are tired and exhausted, terrifying them and driving them off in a rout, first part of verse 2. And then Ahithophel will execute only David. Only David. Why? With David eliminated, Absalom will receive the loyalty of David's supporters who will have to reason, who have no reason to continue this conflict. Pretty wise plan. As always, Incredible insight into what exactly needs to be done and how to do it. But then, then in our text, Absalom asks David's undercover advisor, counselor, what he thinks. Who's that? Remember Hushai. David said, no, you stay in Jerusalem So he's an implanted, embedded, undercover counselor that has expressed his loyalty to Absalom, but he's David's guy. But Absalom gives Hushai a tremendous advantage here. Did you notice what he did? Absalom tells him what Ahithophel has already said. And then he says, what do you think? So Hushai, instead of having to shoot in the dark, knows what's up first and then devises his own strategy. And we see that in verses 5 through 14a. Let me read that. And you, as we read it, um, compare it to what 
Ahithophel has said, verses 5 through the first part of verse 14. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father, remember, your father, he's speaking of David, and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for for a multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Stop right there. Now note that Ahithophel's advice is only three verses, verses 1 through 3. How long is Hushai's? Seven. Ahithophel's advice fits the immediate need for Absalom to act quickly and decisively against David. But Hushai's advice in seven verses is basically, you know, you must tread very carefully here, Absalom, to keep Ahithophel's advice from being followed. He starts off by saying, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. See what he's doing? What he did was acknowledge that Ahithophel's track record is really good. But you know, this one time, you probably shouldn't listen to him, but it casts doubt that anyone, no matter how esteemed, can always be right. And his counsel, Hushai, appeals to four different things. He appeals first to Absalom's vanity, of which there was quite a lot. How does he do that? Well, remember, Hushai had been around for a while, so he knew Absalom. He knew what he was like. And look how he starts off verse 8. You know, Absalom, that your father, blah, blah, blah. 
And in verse 11, But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, that you go to battle in person. In other words, a Texan would say it something like, Yes, sirree. Absalom, you are the new king. You're the, you know the stakes. You've got to be there, man. You must lead the battle. You, 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 you. See that in there? He's appealing to Absalom's vanity, that he's just this great future king, and he's waited all this time, and it'll, it won't be that tough to make this happen. What does he appeal to? Secondly, he appeals to logic. He's basically saying, David's no dummy. He's not going to be standing over by the river waiting for you to come so you can catch him. He's saying what? He'll be hiding. Even Ahithophel's strike force won't be able to find him. Sounds good. And thirdly, he appeals to caution in the last half of 9 and verse 10. In other words, he's saying, if this strike force fails, David's mighty men, you know, those really scary guys who've been with him forever, they're going to wreak havoc among us. And we don't want to give those guys a chance to make their reputations even more scary than they already are. And then lastly, he appeals to vengeance in verse 12 and 13. All of David's followers, all his loyal mighty men could be dealt with. What's that mean? Killed, gotten rid of, gone forever. If you lead a huge army to wipe them out in one fell swoop. And of David, all the men with him, not one will be left. That's what he says in verse 12. So in the first part of verse 14, Absalom and all the men with him like Hushai's advice better. It doesn't seem quite as risky. But right here, God throws us a hardball. Right here. Because we, the readers, are given a gift from God when we're told in the middle of verse 14 what really happened in this war of advisors. We can talk about the strategy and how, many, how long one guy's advice was and how the other guys worked, and we can understand all that. But there's a much bigger, more important reason that God decides to tell us right here. This doesn't happen as often as we'd like it to in the scriptures. But God knows we need to see this right now. So if you're able, would you please stand? I'm going to read a half a verse. The middle of verse 14. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Why? So that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but most of us 
whether we want to admit it or not, we like secrets. Nobody else in this story knows this for sure. Only we do. Feel special now? The secret behind Absalom's change of mind. So, we could explain it this way. This is the explanation for the whole story here. The Lord's sovereignty is not meant to give you philosophical problems. It's meant to give you spiritual comfort. You're supposed to be excited about learning this. And the primary characteristic of his sovereignty in this passage is that it's hidden. The plot against the Lord's king has failed. In case you're not looking ahead in your Bible, if you look at chapter 18, they have a little title in there. It's not inspired, but it's there. It's what? Absalom is killed. That's what's coming. The plot has failed. Why? How would you answer that question now? Because Ahithophel's advice wasn't good? No, we know it was right on target. Why did Absalom change his mind? It's simple. What does it say? This is the word of the Lord. You just said, thanks be to God. It's because God ordained it to fail. That's the point of this whole chapter. This is the explanation. And in the middle of a crisis like this, because this was the biggest crisis of this kingdom so far, or a mess like this, because it really was a mess. In the middle of a crisis like this, or a mess like this, we rarely are aware of what God is doing behind it all. We want to know what God's doing behind it all, but very rarely do we really know. True? You going through a crisis? Have you gone through a crisis? Did you know what, was, what God was doing through it all every step of the way? Probably not. But see, the point is that God is working behind it all. He is not absent, but he may not be obvious. We want obvious. A lot of times his work is hidden until it actually happens. So God tells us what he is doing right here. Great half of the verse. Just this little comment. In the next eight verses, verses 15 through 22, we see how Hushai's report of what's going on actually gets to David. In other words, this, this is a script for a story that we would call a nail-biter. And don't forget, we know what's, what happened, why the 
why his mind was changed. But we're still, even knowing that, as we read this, we're going, oh, man, I hope he makes it. Your heart rate increases a little bit. You get on the edge of your chair. This is a great story. But there is a startling fact here, too. Hushai himself does not know what Absalom decided to do after he gave his advice. Evidently, he must have been removed from Absalom's presence right after he gives his advice. He didn't know what the, what the conclusion was. He didn't know whose advice Absalom was going to take. Remember, as we read in just a second, verses 15 through 22, we are the only ones who've been told for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Nobody else in these verses knows the secret yet. But we still, we still are kind of going, whoa, I wonder if what he said is really going to happen. So let me read verses 15 through 22. Follow along. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, remember those are the two other undercover priests that David said, no, go back to Jerusalem. Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, don't stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogal. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. Spies, espionage, sneaking around, getting the communication. But a young man saw them. Remember the sons of those priests, that's Jonathan and Ahimez. They were the guys that were the, delivering the message. But a guy saw him, and he told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim who had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They've gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they'd gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. See what happened? The message was what? Whose advice? Just in case, I don't know what he decided, but if he took Ahithophel's advice, you guys have got to get out of here quick. Get over the river. So that message was delivered. We, as we read this, we've got to realize that this report 
it looks like to us, everything resides on this. And it is weighty, but we know the secret, do we not? The most danger here is that Ahithophel's strike force would be sent immediately, obviously. So that's what we see is communicated there in verse 21. So the priest's sons, Jonathan and Ahimez, are on their way to David, but someone saw them, so they hide in a well, and a woman covers it. Absalom's servants come to that house. Will they find them? But they can't find Jonathan and Ahimez, so the message gets to David, and David crosses the Jordan. He crosses Jordan right then, in the middle of the night, and our response is a collective, whew, they made it. Now, why all the excitement when we know that Absalom had not decided to follow Ahithahel's advice? Why the dramatic display from your pastor to enhance the story? Enough with, they made it. This is exciting. Why? Because we need to be taught something that's very important. This is a short story about how the Lord is for his servant David, who he has established, who he's made a covenant with. And we need to think about this. This episode is both a narrow escape and a small sign that the Lord is at work for David. This is really important. God's sovereignty is hidden, but his providence brings his sovereignty out where we can get a glimpse of it. That's the way he works so many times. His sovereignty is sort of hidden. We don't really know. The people in the story don't know for sure. But the way he works the providence. Come on, two guys jumping in a well hidden with a cloth with grain on top. There's How many stories and movies have been made with that plot? It's exciting. It's dangerous. The people involved are, would you say, bored? No. But by the providence of God's hand and allowing them to escape and deliver the message, the people, even these people are, are getting a dose of, wow, God's providence has opened this door and he's allowed us to see what he's doing, how he's protecting his king, how he's fulfilling his promises, how he's faithful, how his mighty right arm is powerful. And that's why this is important for us to get. Just like these people, we do not know what God has ordained in most situations like this, do we? We don't. But what is God giving us here? Just like his earlier gifts in chapter 15, let me review a couple of them. His earlier gifts of a guy named Ittai, great name, the loyal Philistine commander who wanted to go with David into exile and he shows up and says, man, I'm with you. I'm going to die with you. Remember how encouraging that was to David? 
That's a gift from God. Somebody else, Hushai himself, to be David's inside man in Jerusalem? In the middle of this conspiracy and rebellion and exile, the heartache and the hardship, God shows us that nothing can topple, get rid of his ordained will and purpose. Nothing. So he gives us this account here in this, of this narrow escape of the messengers to demonstrate his providence which cracks open the door of his sovereignty. Enough. Cracks it open enough so that we stand in awe. We should be in awe and we should be comforted knowing that God really does rule and he really is on his throne and he really reigns. Because of the way things look to us, we tend to think, our perspective is the ultimate reality, don't we? I feel like this, so that's what's really real. What's God saying? You may feel like that, but Bobby, you don't have a clue what I'm really doing behind the scenes. And you need to look to me, no matter what you feel like, no matter what it looks like to you. I am on the throne. Look to me. Trust me. I have so much more at stake than you can possibly imagine. So, isn't God gracious to let us in on what's really going on behind the scenes here? Yeah, he is. Moral creatures make moral choices that they are responsible for, and yet God is not put in a box or taken captive by any of our choices. And don't ever think that you can put him in a box or that his power is broken or that his will will not be accomplished because of somebody's choices, not just yours, anybody's. God promised that David would be his king. David is the king. Even if it looks like right now in our text that his kingship is threatened. That's the message that what God wants us to get. Now, do you think there's a parallel here to the state of our world now? Are you so destroyed by world news tonight that you can't even operate or you don't want to trust God or go to the Bible study or worship? Whose world is it? Who is sovereign? Who is reigning? R-E-I-G-N-I-N-G. Who will come back to settle things once and for all? Who will be forever with this king?
How does knowing this about God help you when you are burdened over sin or the state of the world right now? When you can't figure out how things are the way they are, A really fun, it's not the best word, a really overwhelmingly enthralling faith-building exercise is to ask what providential acts of God are you aware of that testify to the truth about God and his sovereignty? You know, the little gifts that he provides, like Ittai, Hushai, and we've got some coming at the end of this chapter. Do these gifts from God himself encourage you? Do they comfort you? If they do not, something is wrong. If you understand this, this part right here, then you understand the underlying point of 2 Samuel chapter 17. A truth for the ages, no matter what's going on. But there's more. This chapter isn't over yet. In verse 23, Ahithophel commits suicide. I think Ahithophel saw the writing on the wall. He knew that Absalom's only chance to get rid of David was to, was to attack right then when he was so discouraged. He was at a river. The people were dragging. They were tired. They were disheartened. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, what did he know? He knew that Absalom was then doomed. And if Absalom was doomed, he was doomed because he's put all of his, all of his stakes in Absalom's camp. So he hanged himself, is what we read. One commentator writes that while tragic, this should fortify the faith and hope of God's people. Because again, it points to people that do not depend upon the Lord, who do not know him, their plans may look great right now, but they're not going to be worth anything. But there's still more after this. In verses 24 through 29, first, we get an update on the maneuverings of both David and Absalom. They tells us they're both now on the east side of the Jordan River. It tells us who the commanders are. Joab went with David, so Absalom puts Amasa over his huge army. And all the weird family relationships here. Amasa was David's nephew. Amasa was also a cousin of Absalom, Joab, and Abishai. So this guy's a cousin of David's commander, Joab, um, we need a, a picture of a family tree to even come close to getting this. But that's as, 
That's enough. We don't need to really draw it out. And there's another surprise that we see in verses 27 through 29. And you're going, what is this in, in there for? And you can't really answer that question very well unless you get what we've already gone over. Out of nowhere, three strange guys show up with food, provisions, a lot of food and provisions. They just come out of nowhere. And they come out in the open at great risk to stand beside the appointed king. The coolest, the most encouraging thing about this whole part right here at the end of this chapter is that these three men essentially chose whom God had chosen. And that's really the question, the biggest decision here. What an incredible gift from God to David. And it was just at the right time. The people are hungry, they're weary, they're thirsty, they're in the wilderness. And here they come. Who are they? Well, the first guy is a guy named Hanun. And he, no, it's the first guy is Shobi, sorry. He's the brother of Hanun that we read back in 2 Samuel 10, who we could um, say was the lame brain guy who thought he was so great he was going to do something to David and his servants. You remember him? And the reason why we say that is because we know who his father was from the text. Um, and what happens here is this guy, uh, you notice he was an Ammonite, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites. Who would expect someone like him to show up? And he did. He was a pagan, an Ammonite, and he chose David, and he helped him. Then there was Machir, and he'd been very sympathetic to Saul's clan since he had provided a haven for Mephibosheth. Remember Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, back in chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. He, this guy was a former Saul loyalist, so this was no easy decision here. He shows up. And then there was Barzillai, a wealthy but fading senior citizen, 80 years old. And we find out more about him in chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. So we've got Ammonites, we've got a Saul sympathizer, and we've got an ancient, no, not ancient, we've got a senior citizen who bring all this stuff. And they come out of nowhere, and God uses them to encourage David and all the people that were following him. Now, we could, this is, comes at the end of the chapter. So if you're into literature and you like looking at these kind of things, this is kind of God's exclamation point at the end of this particular story. To his point about himself, he's sovereign. Hey, you need help? I'll bring you people you just won't believe that'll serve provide whatever you need at this particular point. And I'm doing this out of my grace. I don't really have to, but I want to do this to encourage you in your faith. 
what does God say besides that he's sovereign? It says that he's working. He's working both for his glory and his people's good. In other words, in the midst of our trials and sufferings, here are both words that are coming. He may intervene to help us remember who he is and what he can do. That's what he knows we really need. We cry out for mercy. He may intervene. But he often, and we've seen this over and over and over again in these books, he often sends us gracious gifts in circumstances and gifts of people that are totally unexpected and totally surprise us and bring us great and deep joy, even if we're in the midst of great sorrow. And most of you who have lived long enough knowing the Lord, walking with the Lord, know how he does this in so many different ways. God knows exactly what his people need, so we must trust him. And some of us may be like Shobi or, I think it's actually Shobai. Shobai or Makir or Bazillai. But will we, like them, identify with the true king no matter what the threat is? Again, when did they show up to help David? When he was on the run, when Absalom was this close to assuming power, and they came in the open with all the stuff that could be easily identified with them, which meant their life was in jeopardy for helping David. And yet they chose him and they came. May we be such people in the lives of God's saints. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for a wild and crazy story where you are right at the center of and you, you tell us the secret of who's behind the events and the change of hearts and men that we totally may not even expect. And you do that to accomplish your purpose, your redemptive plan, to be faithful to every promise you've made, to work in ways that we do not expect even in the midst of sorrow and, and when we don't understand and we don't have a clue how you're working. So God, we pray that you would allow us to be fortified, our faith would be encouraged to look to you when stuff just looks impossible around us, when circumstances are so close and they're so hard that we have a hard time even looking up. Knowing that you are powerful, that you are faithful, and that you may intervene. But we know that you do have our good as one of your purposes as you give glory and honor to your son. So we pray that, that we could rest, that we could breathe in these circumstances, and that you would sustain our faith as your spirit speaks to our hearts through your word and through your people, and through the circumstances that we hopefully can see in much different perspective after this story in particular. 
Help us apply this to our gospel understanding and to our day-to-day circumstances. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Would you please stand for our, our benediction? This is a a verse that's on a whole lot of refrigerators and above a whole lot of sinks. Maybe it'll hit home today. Psalm 68, verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Amen. You're dismissed.